I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Thursday, October 8th. Oil prices are up, odds of a presidential debate next week are down, and we're focused on a surprise prescription from some of America's top doctors. Lots of media organizations print editorials around election season, favoring one candidate or another. And for the most part, no one pays too much attention. But there are exceptions, and one of them hit last night. The New England Journal of Medicine, which has steadfastly stayed out of politics for its entire 208-year history, published an editorial titled Dying in a Leadership Vacuum. It was signed by 34 of the journal's editors and prosecutes a case against President Trump without ever explicitly naming him. It argues that his administration and other political leaders have bungled COVID-19 from the jump, resulting in American deaths and continued economic disruptions. The editorial does acknowledge the unique challenges posed by the novel coronavirus and that many Americans would have died no matter who was in charge. But it goes on to explain how other democratic countries have managed their responses much more skillfully, even though we came into it with a lot more home field advantages. The editorial reads in part, quote, anyone else who recklessly squandered lives and money in this way would be suffering legal consequences. Our leaders have largely claimed immunity for their actions, but this election gives us the power to render judgment, end quote. Again, this isn't an editorial from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, from Fox or MSNBC. It's from a centuries-old, prestigious medical journal whose mission is to inform healthcare delivery and improve patient outcomes. That's it. In this case, it argues the best way to do that is to vote President Trump out of office. So let's go deeper now with Eric Rubin, who not only is editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, but also was chair of immunology and infectious disease at Harvard School of Public Health. So, Doctor, when I read this editorial yesterday, it strikes me almost like it's written by folks or by a person who's had a slow burn for several months and then finally just had to get stuff on paper. How long have you been considering writing this editorial? I think you have it exactly right. In each of our editorial meetings for a while, an issue has come up that we thought about editorializing. But rather than do that, we decided there's been such an accumulation of outrage that we'll save it all up for something that's relevant. And in this case, your own background, immunology, infectious disease, do you think that helped influence the decision to do this? In other words, if the journal was run by, I don't know, a podiatrist, this might not be the same thing? I strongly suspect a podiatrist would feel the same, but I don't know. Remember, we cover everything, but we've been consumed with this outbreak and the response to the outbreak. So even though I'm an infectious disease physician, it's hard to miss what's going on. Talk about the failures at the outset, the failures in testing the failures in terms of PPE procurement. Were those political failures at the beginning or were those just a failure of preparedness? Let me call it leadership failure instead of political failure, because I don't think this is really a conservative or liberal issue. There was a crisis coming, which we knew was coming. And maybe this is a part as an infectious disease physician, I was particularly aware of it, but we had been at the journal gearing up to deal with what was coming for a while, but the government was not. This was something we knew was going to happen and we should have been prepared. We're in a situation now where we're, what, eight, nine months into this. 
we have a bunch of vaccine candidates in phase three trials. We do have some therapeutics, which if not coming onto market or potentially coming onto market. President Trump has repeatedly said we are, quote, turning the corner at this point, October 2020. Are we turning the corner? I want to be optimistic. I think that some of the things that you've mentioned, the vaccines, perhaps some of the therapies really could make a dramatic difference. They really could climb us out of the hole without doing any of the sort of more standard things. But there isn't an effect now. I mean, the number of cases is rising. It's not decreasing right now. We have turned no corner. And let me emphasize, we know how to turn the corner. We've got all the tools. Many other countries have done it. We just aren't implementing them. What are the top line things? What should the United States be doing right now? There's a package of simple public health interventions that are the most effective things that we have. They're masking, they're social distancing, they're testing, contact tracing. And these are the things that have, for example, essentially eliminated disease in New Zealand, limited disease dramatically in Iceland limited the number of deaths in many, many countries. So we didn't need anything fancy to do that. We have all of those tools and we have a tremendous country with tremendous infrastructure here. It would not be hard to do it. From your perspective, should there be a national mask mandate for public spaces? I think at the very least, people should understand what it means to not wear a mask. It's not a political decision. There's a simple truth here. Masks work. And if they choose not to wear them, they're putting themselves and everyone else at risk. Public health in our country is really run at a state level. And so we don't generally have national mandates for anything. Is that something you think we need to rethink for the future? And I had to say this future pandemic or other public health crisis, because you say not only is this stuff run at the state level, this administration particularly has outsourced lots more to the state than perhaps another administration would. Yeah, I think that the administration has outsourced by default by just not picking up the responsibilities it should have. I'm not sure if we need to change the system. The state system has worked reasonably well, but it's only worked with a lot of backup from the expertise of the federal government. The states don't have much expertise. They have manpower and they have laws governing how things can operate, but they need to understand what to do. And that means they need both advice from organizations like the CDC, and it means that they need to have examples in the federal government. The states have varied in their responses. Some of them have been quite good and some have been less good. We've seen examples of everything. You write in the editorial, among other things, that while we have been able to ramp up the number of tests, there are still lots of problems, including capacity, which is leading to delays. And if I go get a test today and don't find out for five or six days if I'm positive or negative, it largely loses its impact, at least for those five or six days. Do you feel when you look at the numbers, are we getting faster overall on testing? I think we are, but it's been far too slow. I think the test that you're referring to, the five or six day test, is almost worthless because people have already passed their time where they're maximally infectious at that point. So as a public health tool, that's not helping us at all. For an individual, it might make a difference if they're infected and they develop symptoms. But otherwise, this is like not having a test at all. Are you concerned that kind of what has become a political brickbat, I guess, to a certain extent over vaccines? Are you concerned that if a vaccine gets approved by the FDA, that it's produced, that's able to be distributed, that there are going to be a large number of Americans who don't take it. And how do you overcome that? Or should we be overcoming that? Because it seems to be the kind of the next big public health hurdle. I'm quite concerned. I don't know what will happen. And I think the best way that we can overcome that is through being transparent about the process and what we require. People have to have trust in the system. Do you have trust in the system currently? The FDA has had some issues with political interference. But it's an outstanding organization. And for the most part, it does its job. 
I think, the way that it should be done. I'm hoping that that will be true for vaccines as well. For the American people, from New England Journal of Medicine's point of view, what is the most important thing that they should take out of your editorial? We fail to do simple things. We're the most powerful country in the world, and yet we're being shown up by many other places. And it's not a contest. It means that these places are saving people's lives, and we're throwing these lives away. It's outrageous. I think people need to think about that strictly within the confines of COVID-19. But in a more general sense, our leaders have been presented with a crisis, and that's the real test of leadership. They failed. And the final line of your piece is that we should not abet them, them being the leaders, and enable the deaths of thousands more Americans by allowing them to keep your jobs. You do not use any individual leader's name in this piece. Is this editorial saying that Americans, from the journal's perspective, should be voting for Joe Biden over Donald Trump? We didn't specify in part because there are lots of leaders and there's blame to go around. I think it's easy to interpret this as you should not vote for Donald Trump. Not an endorsement of Joe Biden. It's simply kind of throw the bums out. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Certainly. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is whether President Trump will participate in next week's planned presidential debate. The Bipartisan Commission this morning said that the town hall style event would be done virtually so as to protect participants from COVID-19. But Trump then went on TV to say he won't do it, calling virtual events, quote, ridiculous. Joe Biden responded by saying he'll participate if Trump participates, and if not, will spend his night doing some other sort of campaign event. The bottom line, as Axios Politics editor Margaret Tollive notes, is that Trump announced the ridiculousness of a virtual debate during a virtual interview and underscored it on Twitter, a virtual form of communication. Today, we are also watching weekly jobless claims, which came in a bit lower than last week's number, but a bit higher than economist expectations. Two things to know. First, these slight fluctuations matter less than the fact that weekly jobless claims are, in general, still hovering near historic highs. Two, figures from this week and last are to some extent artificially low because California hasn't reported, instead taking a two-week break to catch up on its jobless claims backlog. And speaking of jobs, Nancy Pelosi said today she will not move forward with a standalone stimulus bill for the airlines, just a day after President Trump said that he'd sign one. And finally, Dollar General announced that it's going upscale. Well, sort of. The discount retailer is launching a new group of stores called Pop Shelf, which will include items like home decor and party goods. Rather than typical $1 price points, Pop Shelf prices will be closer to $5. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national fluffernutter day. And we'll be back Monday with another Axios Recap.